The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. everyone and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host Naomi Baratera and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into our beloved art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programs, lectures and community events that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. In anticipation of the Met's live in HD broadcast of Manon Lescaut happening this Saturday, March 5th, we are happy to bring you a Manon Lescaut pre-performance lecture that took place not even 24 hours prior to the release of this episode. Today's lecturer, Nemet Habashi, is known in the New York City area for her more than 25 years as the host of New York at Night on the old WQXR. She now frequently gives lectures at both the Met Opera Guild as well as the Metropolitan Museum of Art and has even joined the Met Museum as a lecturer on international tours. I hope you enjoy Ms. Habashi's insights into the opera that put Puccini on the map, his first great hit, Manon Lescaut. Thank you, Stuart, and hello, everybody. And uh, I think perhaps this may serve as a respite from Super Tuesday. <laughs> it gives us a chance to think about other things, but how lovely to see you all. And I hope that if you're going to be going to the opera later on, this may serve as a, perhaps a little addendum to your evening. You have to ask yourself, why has an 18th century morality tale about an aristocrat and the courtesan that he loves endured in 200 editions, at least four plays, five operas, several movies made in France, and as required reading for French 101 level courses in many a university. The fact is, the French is fairly easy, so it's very frequently assigned, and it's a great read. L'Histoire du Chevalier des Grieux et de Manon Lescaut was only a portion of the Abbé Prévost's memoir of a man of quality who has returned from the world, who has retired from the world. But it gained notoriety because the author, who had written one of the raciest novels that had ever appeared in France, happened to be a Benedictine monk. The fact that Manon Lescaut was banned after its publication for its immorality did not hurt at all. In fact, copies circulated easily in the Paris of the 1730s. Here is the Abbé Prévost. He lived a flamboyant, somewhat debauched life to the fullest. And he seems to have truly admired virtue and wisdom, but he had a devil of a time practicing either of these. The Abbé reminds of his young hero, and Puccini was a young man looking for a good libretto. What the author, his protagonists, and the opera composer had in common was youth. The wellspring of excitement and daring and a sense of adventure. In his life, the author of the novel was a refugee from his Benedictine order, from the police, from the English, from the Dutch, and always, always from his creditors, who were very, very many. He left his Benedictine order when he was 24 because he wasn't getting along with the other monks, and he became a Protestant and fled to England, where he became a tutor to support himself, but he erred. He seduced Mary Isles, the daughter of the house, in mid-French lesson and was forced to flee to Holland. <laughs> and that was where he had a ruinous affair with one Lenke Eckhart, who already had several children by a Swiss colonel. Lenke may or may not have been the prototype for Manon, but truth to tell, there were many candidates for that somewhat dubious honor. Lenke drained Prévost's purse and was forced to and he was forced to take advances on books that he did not produce. So he crossed the channel to England once again and forged a money order and wound up in prison. And just and as an addendum, he managed to borrow money once from Voltaire. Towards the end of his life and many books later, the Abbé earned respectability. He earned a pardon from the Pope himself, and he found himself a comfortable position as the chaplain to the Prince de Condé at the castle of Chantilly, where he died 
in rather cushy digs. <laughs> the Abbe's tale mirrors his novel. He and his hero are susceptible to women who force them to do terrible things. Prévost's hero goes so far as to kill a gatekeeper at the prison of Saint-Lazare for his Manon. The author hero, new prison and degradation. The Abbé fled across the English Channel for his Lenki. De Grieux fled to the, across the Atlantic for his Manon. Both seem to have pitted their emotions against their reason. Virtue always conflicted with vice. What more could you ask for if you were a young Giacomo Puccini hunting for very good material for an opera? Manolesco was more than a notorious tale. It galvanized the French novel, which had stagnated with the chaste passions of the Princesse de Clèves by Madame de Lafayette. Anybody ever had to read that one? It was rather heavy going. Uh, most importantly, it paved the way for Flaubert's Madame Bovary, and that novel came a little more than a century later. Manon Lescaut has remained an inspiration for many. Among them, the writers André Gide, Guy de Maupassant, Saint-Beuve, and more recently, even Jean Cocteau. Alfred de Musset, the poet, put Manon in his poem Namuna and referred to her as a Cleopatra in petticoats. Spoiler alert for anyone seeing the opera tonight or at a future date. The Metropolitan's present version of the Puccini opera takes place in Vichy, France or at any rate, in Nazi-occupied Paris. The fact that it takes place in the 18th century Regency, we put aside for this outing, but there are reasons it does work. There has been a 20th century version of Manon Lescaut already. In late 1952, Hans-Werner Henze gave us Boulevard Solitude, an opera based on Manon Lescaut, but his version takes place after the Second World War. So this is not so new. The premiere of Boulevard Solitude did not happen in America until Santa Fe in 1967. Whether it's World War II or 18th century France, we still have young people trying to eke out a good time against very heavy odds. And that makes it really quite workable. It's terrific. It really renders a very, very interesting idea for Manon Lescaut. So where does this contrary, impossible Manon, innocent, possessed of the ability to ruin a man's life, come from? She escapes the convent and winds up in Paris and proceeds to cause all kinds of mayhem. And she can't change. She doesn't change. Degrieux is painfully aware of that. At some point in the opera, he tells us sadly that she is sempre la stessa. She's always the same. It is Degrieux who has got to change to accommodate his lady love. He learns early, being poor means losing Manon. At one point, she says to him, do you think one can be tender when one is hungry? During a brief lull in their woes, Degrieux tells us, the increase in our fortunes redoubled our affections. Clearly, the degree of affection was proportionate to the amount of funds that Degrieux was able to provide his fickle love. So he learns how to gamble from no less than Manon's brother, and he finds the gambling tables in Paris. Many a Frenchman gambled away his life at the Hotel de Transylvanie, which really did exist. It was at number 9 Rue Bonaparte on the Quai Malaké. And still, like many famous femmes fatales who come before her, Manon remains irresistible to all men, the composer among them. She sins with such innocence that it is very hard to blame her. And she causes total catastrophe. She says of herself, I must be guilty since I have caused you so much pain, but may God punish me if ever I knew it. Well, sadly, God does punish her. Giacomo Puccini was embarking on his third opera after two moderate successes with Le Villi and Edgar. He was considered to have shown promise, and now he had to fulfill everyone's expectations. He poured everything into this one. Melodies, musical ideas, and it's brilliant. The overture alone is a burst of excitement and melody that tells us immediately that this is going to be a lively night in the theater. In fact, you might even think it's going to be an opera comique, but it's not.
already you've got two perfectly lovely themes. And it does give the idea that it's going to be a light-hearted evening. Puccini was well aware that he was up against heavy odds. His own Manon Lescaut followed opera successes with the same subject by Aubert, Balf, and Massenet. Massenet's Manon opened in 1884, all of nine years before Puccini's Manon Lescaut in 1893. In a letter to his publisher, the publisher Giulio Ricordi, Puccini wrote, Manon is a heroine I believe in, and she cannot fail to win the hearts of the public. Ricordi wasn't so sure, but defending his decision to set yet another Manon soon after Massenet's opera, Massenet, um, Puccini said, Massenet feels Manon Lescaut as a Frenchman with powder and minuets. I shall feel it as an Italian with desperate passion. Manon became Puccini's first great hit, even though it was up against Verdi's final masterpiece, Falstaff, which premiered just eight days after Manon Lescaut. Can you imagine the pressure on Puccini? Ricordi had had the foresight to see that Puccini's opera opened in Turin, so as not to take away the thunder from Verdi's opera opening at La Scala in Milan. Puccini was embarked on joining a new age in opera, Verismo operas with blood and guts. Cavalleria and Pagliacci had already appeared. Mascagni had won a music publisher's contest for his Cavalleria Rusticana. But it was Puccini who would draw the most attention to himself with Manon Lescaut and be dubbed the heir of Verdi. And that label came from no less than George Bernard Shaw. Verdi and Puccini could not have been more different. Verdi was a scholar, a nationalist, a philosopher, as well as a composer. It had been said that if Giuseppe Verdi's operas were a battle cry, Giacomo Puccini's were more of a mating call. Never did a composer write such overtly erotic, sentimental music and get away with it. Twelve times. Puccini invites us to wallow unashamedly in glorious, seemingly uncomplicated, lush melodies. The composer was a hedonist, interested in little but elemental pleasures. He said of himself that he was a passionate hunter of ducks, good libretti, and women. To the naive among us, it is always a surprise with a rather mediocre human being proves to have an area of genuine genius that makes it a deep and lasting impression on a, on a very receptive world. If the truth were told, Giacomo Puccini was vain, he was cruel, he was selfish, a coward, notoriously stingy, and famously a dreadful philanderer. He was known as Monsieur Butterfly. And he once said, this is him as a child, on the day I'm no longer in love, you may order my burial. In short, Puccini cuts a somewhat disappointing figure, if a handsome one, in the pantheon of great composers, but he can make us weep with every single phrase. How many of us have sworn that we're not going to succumb to weeping over Mimi this time as she drops her muff? And how many times have you sworn you won't cry when Butterfly's child comes in to find his dead mother? I fail very often. Only one of the 12 Puccini operas is a comedy. That, of course, is Gianni Schiti. And all of them are ubiquitous in the world's opera houses. An English critic once said that opera houses need Puccini the way farms need dung. An opera season without Puccini is box office suicide. You need at least Madame Butterfly, Bohème, and Tosca. Puccini was of the fifth generation of a family of musicians that had been plying their trade for 150 years in a little town known as Lucca, situated between Florence and Pisa, and not far from the Mediterranean, and absolutely lovely. Every member of the family, including Giacomo Puccini, had at some point played the organ in Lucca's church of San Michele. The first Giacomo Puccini, the great-great-grandfather great of the Giacomo we're concerned with, wrote 17 masses, 10 tedeums, 22 motets, and 12 Lamentations. Michele Puccini, Giacomo's father, wrote operas for Naples and Bologna, and Giacomo Antonio Domenico Michele II Maria Puccini was the fifth of seven children born to Albina and Michele Puccini. By the time he arrived, he was the first son after four daughters and rather spoiled. He barely knew his father, but his father taught him the basics of music in a very clever way. 
We would put coins on the end of the piano keys and the child had to push the key in order to get the coin. And that way he earned himself some money. Puccini's mother was a strong, dominating woman who managed the young Puccini to be convinced that her son needed to get very, very good music lessons and that he had a great deal of talent. In the meantime, the young Puccini sang in the local choir and to keep himself in cigarettes, he began playing the piano in brothels. According to legend, Puccini stole some church organ pipes to sell for cigarette money, and he was so talented that he knew how to play the organ without playing the notes that were missing the pipes. And his operatic breakthrough came after he heard Verdi's Aida in Pisa, the great Verdi. Legend has it that Puccini, in his zeal to hear the Verdi opera, traveled 30 kilometers to Pisa on foot. Detractors from the Puccini legend insist that the composer took public transport. Puccini saw a relatively new hit opera. Aida opened only five years before in Cairo, Egypt. After hearing the opera, Puccini apparently knew that he would be writing opera for his life's work. He said, Almighty God touched me and told me to write for the theater, mind you, only for the theater. Life in Luca was not easy. The beautiful Roman medieval town that charms us today was something of a backwater. Though the Puccini family managed to keep up appearances, they were really quite poor. This is where they lived. The house is a museum today. It has his piano, it has costumes, and it's a rather fun visit. Puccini's manuscripts are there, and they tended to be rather illegible. But he was already beginning to write music as a young man, and one piece that did make it was a song, I figli d'Italia Bella, the Sons of Beautiful Italy. And his eight-minute Preludio Sinfonico, which he wrote at the age of 18, was one of his first serious successes. But it was deemed too symphonic by Giuseppe Verdi. This was an accusation that would be leveled against Puccini all his life. His music does sound somewhat symphonic. Verdi said, opera is opera, symphony is symphony. Puccini didn't care. After conducting one of Puccini's operas, however, Gustav Mahler swore he would never, ever conduct another one. Now, in this performance of the Preludio Sinfonico, which is played by the Philharmonica of La Scala under the direction of Riccardo Muti, you can already hear the symphonic quality and the so-called Puccini droop, that unmistakable pull on the heartstrings. I think that makes the point. It's lovely, isn't it? And it turns up in Manolis Go, portions of that. It was decided that the boy should go to Milan and go to the Milan Conservatory. Only there was no money in the family. Although Luca was now part of the unified Italy, unification under a monarch of the House of Savoy may have brought certain amount of stability. But once the euphoria of the freedom from the Austrians and other overlords, it became clear that Italy was quite broke. 19th century Italy had been fragmented, bits of it ruled by Austria, Spain, and the Vatican, and the House of Savoy, based in Turin. There were 12 city-states. The Italy that we know today spoke French, German, and Italian. It would be a long time before Italy would catch up to her rapidly industrializing neighbors. Puccini was attempting to enter the most famous conservatory, and the one that had turned down Giuseppe Verdi. But Puccini's mother, managed to go out and gather some money, and the boy was sent off to Milan, where he roomed with Pietro Mascagni, 
author of Cavalleria Rus composer of Cavalleria Rusticana. Puccini did lead the student life. And if you recall in La Boheme, Colline sells his coat in the fourth act to buy medicines for the dying Mimi. Well, the fact is, Puccini once sold his coat. He put that scene beautifully into La Boheme. But the fact is that Puccini sold his coat in order to take a young woman to the ballet. They managed to live rather nicely, and they went quite frequently to La Scala, where they heard the operas of Meyerbeer, Verdi, and Aubert. Puccini was notoriously lazy, but he did stay awake during the composition classes led by Amilcare Ponchelli, the composer of La Gioconda. And it was Amilcare Ponchelli who introduced the young composer to Giulio Ricordi and the House of Ricordi that would become, as Puccini put it, agents, financiers, and psychiatrists. And they were decidedly interested in protecting their greatest asset, Puccini. The House of Ricordi made more money on Puccini's works than Puccini ever did. They published all but one of Puccini's operas, and Puccini worked with three generations of this publishing house. The best collaboration, however, was with Giulio Ricordi, who was described by Puccini as the best of poets and the mender of other men's faults. Eight years Puccini's senior, Giulio was a father figure who presided over Edgar, Manon Lescaut, La Boheme, Tosca, Butterfly, and Fanciulla del West. Another ally acquired early was Arturo Toscanini. This is a grand picture of Arturo Toscanini in the middle, Puccini to the right, and David Velasco, a rather also very important figure, who as an American playwright would provide the stories for both Madama Butterfly and The Girl of the Golden West three decidedly attractive men about town, and they knew it. Those first years were hard for Puccini. Not only his first opera had failed, but his mother was dying, the result of a life of poverty and, star and privation. It was in this period that Puccini gave piano lessons when he was in Lucca to supplement his income. Among his students was the wife of a former classmate, the lady was Elvira Gemignani, whose maiden name was Bonturi. A serious affair began. She was a mother of two, but she left her liquor merchant husband and moved in with Puccini in Milan. She brought a daughter with her, and uh, the son stayed with the father. Puccini was broke and now living openly with a married woman. Within two years, they were the parents of the only child of their union, whose name was Tonio. The liaison lasted 18 years until Elvira's husband conveniently died and allowed the two to marry and make the liaison legal. Over the years, Elvira turned into a harridan who tormented her husband, whom she always suspected of infidelity, with perfectly good reason. Puccini was faithful to Elvira in his fashion, but he spoke of his little gardens. None of the affairs were long-term. It is significant that to this day nobody seems to know who the ladies were. Elvira was constantly on the watch, sometimes donning her husband's suit to spy on her husband. And sometimes he would hire a pianist to play in his studio so that he could go off and keep a tryst. They managed to, managed to somehow survive all of this, but there is something of the Grand Guignol or Commedia dell'arte about it. This is Elvira ostensibly killing her husband. They had a difficult time finding a place to live. Landlords weren't interested in having people who were not married living openly. So they moved to Torre del Lago, not far from the Mediterranean beach town of Viareggio. The Torre referred to are the two towers of a stronghold that once stood on the shores of Lake Massacciucoli. This is the house or the side of it. This would re remain Puccini's favorite locale. If you want to visit, you kind of have to make arrangements in advance because the gatekeeper tends to want to go fishing. So if you turn up unannounced, he will inform you that there has to be there have to be at least ten people. And we were very lucky. Just as we were about to give up, ten people turned up. And so the fishing expedition was off. But this is part of what the interior looks like. As it turned out, mind you, the people of Torre del Lago were not much better about the liaison of the composer than anyone else. And people also disapproved of Puccini's music, which they referred to as harlot's music. This despite the fact that 
Puccini brought a great deal of employment to the village. But for Puccini, it was a perfect locale. He not only found some measure of peace, and he could hunt to his heart's content. He once said, after the piano, my favorite instrument is the rifle. Until fairly recently, ownership of that house was in question, because the only heir to the Puccini family at this time is gone. She was the illegitimate daughter of Puccini's son. She is now gone, and I think the house has reverted back to, to the state. Puccini was a slow worker. The first two successful operas had taken him eight years, and Elvira was always there to remind him that Verdi had already produced three operas within a very short amount of time. So Puccini was looking through libretti, trying to find the right vehicle. In the course of his life, he went through at least 70 libretti to produce the 12 operas that we have. In Manon, he had a winner. Puccini ruthlessly curtailed the Prévost episodic novel and took pains to dramatize scenes that Massenet did not. For example, he never shows us Manon's garret life with her impoverished Grieux, a scene in Massenet's version which he wished to avoid, but he does dwell on Manon's deportation and demise in America. Massenet's Manon never crosses the Atlantic. Manon's awful conflict between her avidity for a life of luxury and her genuine love for Des Grieux drives the novel and the opera. The novel is a very painful read, as a matter of fact. Every time you think that Manon's going to shape up, make the right choice, settle down with the in the garret, she shoots herself in the foot and changes her mind again. In the opera, before we ever meet Manon, we meet a bevy of young students loitering around the square in Anya. They're waiting for the arrival of the coach that has come in from Arras. They sing of the youth they presently enjoy and the anticipation of things to come. Giovinezza il vostro nome, la speranza è nostra idea. Youth is your name and the hope is our goddess. And then, as if to confirm that youth is going to be the main theme of the evening, our young hero de Grieux sings in tribute to all the young lovelies he can choose from. Brunettes, blondes, show me my fate. Bravo e belli, brune e bionde, and it goes on from there. Now, this was Shaw's favorite moment in the opera, and it is a recurring theme. It comes back, it is interpolated, it is a brilliant piece of music. But if you pick up nothing else, think of the first measure of this aria, because it is visible or audible in practically everything else in the whole opera. Bravo e belli, brune e bionde, Nasconde giovinetta, vaga e vezzosa, dalla prorosa che m'aspetta. Sei tu via da stella, dillo a me, con esate mille destino, e il divino viso ardente che mi innamori, io veggo e amore. If nothing else stays with you, the first measures of that aria, I hope, will. At this point, De Grieux is a young man ripe for an adventure, and he doesn't have to wait long. It drops in his lap. The coach arrives and disgorges Desco and his sister Manon. Desco is a petty crook. He's a gambler. And he does not stop short of selling his sister into prostitution, if it helps him. He's been entrusted with his sister's safety and chastity. He's supposed to escort her to a convent. And then there's Manon, who has only begun to realize the seductive powers that she has and uh, is not too keen to become a nun. She is well aware that she's attracted the eye of the older, powerful treasurer general by the name of Gérante de Ravoir, who plans to abduct her. But instead, of course, in the first act, we have the love scene where Manon falls madly in love with Desgrieux and vice versa. And this is the first time, of two at least, that Puccini uses the stratagem of the charm of the name of the beloved. Manon, when asked her name, says, Manon Lescaut, mi chiamo, I'm called Manon. And of course, in La Bohème, Mimi tells us, mi chiamano Mimi, 
they call me Mimi, and that theme keeps recurring. Only the music of Manon, Lescaut, Michiamo keeps soaring higher and higher and higher, and the tenor sings it, hopefully, very, very well, and it, is, it becomes an absolutely passionate statement on his part. The music is repeats itself. You've got Travoi Belle Brune Bionde, and it comes up again and again, as I pointed out. The second act finds us in Quelle Trine Morbide, in the elegant digs that Geronte's largesse has provided. But Manon sings of the coldness of her newfound life. She has begun to tire of the luxuries, actually, and is missing the warm caresses of her student lover. Lescaut comments, a bored woman is a frightening thing. And I think that's a very telling statement. It's in the novel, of course. Manon is bored, and her hair has to be fixed, and she has to dance just so. And that is all done very, very nicely in the production of the Met at the moment. So it is no wonder that she's open to the return of her young lover. She spurned him so cruelly just a few short weeks ago. Now she has to lure him back. She taunts him with, I am still pleasing, aren't I? Am I no longer pleasing? She doesn't believe that, of course, for a moment. She's just checked herself in the mirror, but it's a good line. Here are Miriam Gauci and Antonio Ordones with a Flemish opera under the direction of Silvio Varghiso. And the thing to watch for is how Puccini deals with how Manon gets back her lover, and later on we'll compare it with the Massimo. So let's have the Puccini first. Please.
I believe that's called a guilt trip. <laughs> now, in the French, it's quite different. Manon is very self-assured, and he says, is this no longer the hand that you once took, the hand that you once loved? N'est-ce plus ma main que cette maîtresse? I would suggest that it's one of the most sensual, sexy scenes in the whole of opera. And here it is sung in a 1977 performance by Beverly Sills. She's not 16, but she's absolutely splendid at getting back her errant lover sung by Henry Price. Some of you may remember this. Our quite dreadful heroine in the Manon Lescaut of Puccini, which we come back to, cannot bear to leave all the goodies she's acquired by having her liaison with the wealthy Geronte. So she tries to collect all her jewellery and she runs for it and she tries to pick it all up. And then, of course, she's caught by her ex-lover. She has the temerity to take the mirror she has just used to reassure herself of her own beauty and places the mirror in front of the aging Geronte de Ravoir and says, guardatevi, e poi guardate noi. Look at yourself, and now look at us. Can anything be more killing than that? Well, he's destroyed. He goes away. 
But at this point, it's almost impossible to feel pity for Manon. She really has behaved horribly. But Puccini plays on our emotions. The music tells us that Manon is going to be punished and we share in the anxiety. And then comes this blessed intermezzo that seems to not belong, but it's like a little symphony that collects all the themes hitherto, tells us what's been happening, and tells us what's about to happen, and it's not good. Because we know that Manon is now going to suffer for her crimes. She's about to be deported as a prostitute to the New World. Fact is, France owned a large swatch of the United States. Everything you see in blue. It's an awfully large amount. I mean, most people think it was Louisiana. Well, it's a lot more than Louisiana. It was the fate of many a French citizen to be shipped to this new territory, and it was certainly the fate of many a French prostitute. That's all true. The Manons in Paris were often well-known personalities. The period scandal sheet called Barbier contained many tales like that of Marie-Madeleine Chavigny, who was known as Manon of Versailles. The courtesan heroine was not a new phenomenon. The Abbé Prévost had probably encountered Daniel Defoe's novel, Moll Flanders. He had been in England, and he had probably knew about Robinson Crusoe. But the novel about Moll Flanders is an autobiography of one Moll, was based on a biography by, of Moll King. Moll Flanders spent 12 years as a courtesan, married five times, and got deported to Virginia as a criminal. But unlike Manon, she died rich and comfortably repentant. Les Grieux and Lescaut appear, and we learn that they have a plot to try to spring poor old Manon. They hide when the lamplighter comes along and sings a somewhat ribald ditty. In keeping with the proceedings, it's about a king's amorous quest. The singer in this performance is Carlo Gaita, and it's a lovely little bit that you might enjoy. Even that tune has a tiny bit of Travoi Belle Brune Bionde. It's amazing. When you listen to it tonight or whenever you get to see Manon Lesco next, just keep thinking of Travoi Belle Brune Bionde from Act One. It's amazing. It keeps coming up in various ways. The plot to spring Manon doesn't work. Puccini makes a great scene out of the sorry group of women that are about to be deported. There is the very, very cocky one who is all bravura and the very, very frightened young woman who is being shipped out of France and is terrified. And then Manon comes in. She's ill and bedraggled, and you can't help but feel sorry for her, even though she has behaved so badly. Manon curses her fatal beauty, something she does rather frequently. Desgrieux desperately tries to protect Manon, but is thwarted in his efforts. Now desperate, our hero asks if he can come on the ship. He begs and he begs. And the captain relents. And then the captain has a great line, which if the opera weren't so tragic, could earn a laugh. He says to Desgrieux, so you want to populate the Americas, do you? Here is a lithograph from those days of the ladies being put on the ship. One can only hope that the lovers had a few good moments together on board ship. But given Manon's state, we can assume it's unlikely. The next act finds us in the famed deserts of New Orleans. But a lot has happened before we get to that point. Here it's worth going back to the novel and the history to find out just why the pair have gone from the boat in Act 3 to the desert of Act 4. Puccini never bothers to tell us. It just happens. Manon's cursed beauty has caused the governor of the settlement's nephew to fall in love with Manon. 
But since Manon and Desgrieux are passing themselves off as married, the nephew can do nothing about it. However, when our unhappy little pair, in a particularly stupid mood, ask the governor to marry them and make it legitimate, the governor, having thought them married all along, decides to exercise his power over the deported Manon and give her to his nephew. So Desgrieux and the governor's nephew duel, and Desgrieux, thinking he has killed the scoundrel, decides to flee. So he and Manon leave the safety of the settlement that is governed by a Frenchman and go to a desert on the border of New Orleans, that famous locale that so many Louisianans find extremely funny when you tell them about that. Until not too long ago, people used to visit Lake Pontchartrain, Pontchartrain, I guess, purported to be the tomb of Manon. This notwithstanding, Puccini has Manon dying of thirst and sends Desgrieux off in search of water for her. But it's too late. Manon sings her aria, Sola, perduta, abandonata, lost, uh, <laughs> alone, lost, and abandoned. And I just would like you to know that the first night I ever went on the air on WQXR, one of the pieces I had to play in my state of absolute terror was Sola, perduta and abandonata, which was exactly the way I felt. <laughs>
the historical facts helped make the book as provocative as it was in its time. Louis XIV spent his long reign cultivating the indolence and depravity of his courtiers so they would not foment revolution. And the strategy worked. For a while, courtiers were kept busy dressing correctly, dancing correctly, attending on their king, rather reminding of the second act of Manon Lescaut. Louis thereby safeguarded his reign and the continuity of his own dependent descendants on the throne of France. But life played a very cruel trick on Louis XIV. Neither his son nor his grandson survived. And it was his great-grandson who inherited the throne at the age of five. Before he died, Louis XIV was forced to leave his closest blood relation, his nephew, Philippe Duc d'Orléans, as head of the Council of Regents. The monarchy that the regent inherited was in a state of chaos. A period of decompression followed as Louis XIV's wars were ended. The appetite for pleasure and frolic became a national fever. It was a frank and cynical age. Distraction was the order of the day. The same spirit may have pervaded Nazi-occupied France, thereby giving some legitimacy to the set that is the chosen set for this production. Philippe Duc d'Orléans created perfumes, he painted, he collected art, he dabbled in philosophy, and he wrote operas. His opera Pente survives. A knowledge of music was a sign of good breeding among the other classes. Among the upper classes, one remembers Geronte writing his little madrigal for the levee of Manon when she wakes up in the morning. The regency was sensual, it was elegant, it was frivolous, neurotic, and seasoned with grace. The period is epitomized by Watteau's L'embarquement pour Cythère, the embarkation for the island of Cythera, the birthplace of Venus or Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty. Some couples in the painting seem to be positively running for the boat, others are a little reticent. Gentlemen seem to be trying to convince their ladies to get on the boat, which is in the back. There is voluptuousness in a sense that life passes all too quickly and must be enjoyed at the instant. Surely Manon de Grieux would have been first onto the boat, that boat, not the boat to America. Puccini's second act, opening music, informs the whole act, and this painting of Watteau has probably been used in the past as a very appropriate set. While the little king, Louis XV, <laughs> did his growing up in the manicured gardens designed by Le Nôtre, accompanied by a Native American brought from Canada for his amusement, the economist John Law tried to straighten out the French economy. He offered the regent a scheme that promised to rescue the public debt. He centralized the economy in a national bank and replaced metallic currency with paper. He also fostered investment in the Compagnie des Indes, which controlled the vast tract of land known as La Mississippi. Wild speculation followed. Fortunes were made and lost. The Mississippi bubble burst and John Law was forced to flee France. The turmoil was such that Philippe Duc d'Orléans is frequently referred to as the herald of the French Revolution that would follow but one reign later and began with the storming of the Bastille here in an aerial view. In the Nouveau Mercure, a periodical of the time, the following piece appeared about Mississippi. It is a charming territory, just beginning to be populated. Of the 900 that set sail for the New World, only seven died, and these were aged or infirm. And then, although we are surrounded by savages, there is no risk to life nor limb. There is such trust that doors are left open. But the truth was seeping back into France. The journeys were hideous. The territory was unhealthy due to a superabundance of frogs in the marshland. The water was contaminated. There was fever, famine, fire. 500 inhabitants were lost in a six-month period. And there was great danger from the Chicksaw, the Choctaw, and the Natchez tribes. The French embellished on these already dramatic facts. There were said to be crocodiles and serpents in the water. It was alleged that fruits were poisoned. Soon the threat to an unruly child became, if you don't behave, I'll send you to La Mississippi. France had trouble finding settlers, and so in 1718, they started deporting undesirable French citizens in ships like these. 
The majority of the 800 on board the first three ships were smugglers, convicts, and vagabonds. By 1719, recruits were being kidnapped off the streets. France was purged of many a scoundrel who found him or herself bound for La Nouvelle Orléans. It also became a grand way to ditch an errant husband or a scandalous son or a cumbersome wife. A lettre de cachet, a secret letter of denunciation much employed later in the French Revolution, did the trick. And some of these letters still exist. The year 1721 saw the shipment of girls from the women's prison of La Salpêtrière, and that would have been the voyage of Manon Lescaut, who had been in that prison. To this day, there's a courtyard in the complex named for Manon Lescaut. The ladies, most of whom had led debauched lives in France, were unacceptable to the settlers already in Louisiana. Much later, girls were escorted to La Nouvelle Orléans, to the New World. A house in New Orleans at the corner of Chartres and Ursuline streets in the old Ur is the old Ursuline convent, where young men came to court young ladies under the watchful eyes of the nuns later on. I'd like to thank my friend Yvette Rabi for her contribution to this paper and the always incredible Stuart Holt for his ability to keep up with PowerPoint, audio, VHS, and CDs in octopus-like fashion. Thank you, Stuart, very much. Just think, if Manon and her beloved Desgrieux hadn't decided to legitimize their union, they could have lived happily ever after in the Vieux Carré, the site of the old settlement of New Orleans, and their great-grandchild might be playing blues on Basin Street. That wasn't to be. Thank you all very much for coming. Enjoy Manon Lescaut. Thank you so much for listening to episode 21 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you will take a moment to leave a comment or a review in iTunes, or consider donating to the continuation of the podcast at metguild.org podcast. Next week, you can look forward to another gem from the Talking About Opera archives, in which Albert Inarato discusses the enchantingly comedic Don Pasquale. Until then, I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and thank you for listening.